Um, at this moment, what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask all our panelists to turn on their cameras and, and uh, we're going to have a conversation. We, we do have a couple of questions that have come in and we're going to take the next 20, 25 minutes or so to, to have a conversation on some of the topics that we've heard. But my first question would be um, uh, for, for all the panelists, but I'll, I'll, I'll give Dr. Alice a chance to answer first. We, we talked about what's happening because of COVID and how it's prompting us to change things. And there seems to be momentum. And my question for you would be, where will the leadership come? Uh, once people are vaccinated, hopefully there's some normalcy. Uh, where will the leadership come to maintain that momentum? And my second part of the question, or is there concern that once we get through the crisis, we're just going to go back to the same problems and, and not uh, incorporate what we've learned in the last 18 months? Uh, both very good questions, and thank you. Thank you also, um, fellow panelists, for the presentations. Fantastic. I mean, between us, we covered it. We covered this area very, very well. Um, are we going back to what there was before? Um, even if we wish to, I don't think we'll be able to. And there are two real drivers to that. One, we won't be able to afford to. And two, we can't go back to what we had before because pandemics are here to stay. One, we're not through this one. And clearly there are others. The super communicated world of today makes that much more likely. So we need to understand that the new world is very different. Secondly, where is the leadership gonna come from? Well, clearly it's gonna to have to come from us. Uh, from the coalition of the willing, really, and the people who understand. You know, it's really saddening to hear stories about community care, about care in, at home, home care being the third cousin uh, rather than the primum inter pares. I mean, it really is disparaging. It really is, un it makes me feel very angry as well as very unhappy because, you know, we've felt this all over the world. Uh, we've had the problems in the United Kingdom as well around the fact that um, care homes uh, where the places where people who actually um, were living with COVID were discharged from hospitals to clear the space, to clear the space, uh, and i.e. infect everybody else. Um, uh, there were all sorts of disasters globally associated with this. And I think there is an understanding uh, and I use that word shamed appropriately uh, because I think we're all shamed to action now. It's up to us to do it. And I think we should. You just saw mute there, Bernard. Still on mute. Still on mute. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you think I'd learn after a year, right? So uh, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> so um, is there any other, anybody else who wants to comment on, on, go ahead, Lisa. Yeah, I just would love to add that. And Dr. Lessie, I would say, I know there are aspects that we can't turn back the clock, right? The barn door has been opened, pick an analogy. However, there are movements afoot that says, once we get to deep, breathe a deep sigh of relief that we're through the majority of the work effort from a COVID response. So COVID will still be with us, but that COVID response energy, we revert back. There are sentiments that would say, well, maybe we need to go back and fix some of the fundamental problems, but do we fix them in the old way or do we fix them with a new complete frame of mind? Right. And what do we, when you, Bernard, you asked the word leadership. So I think we have to look in the mirror and say, well, are we going to look to government for leadership 
Or are we collectively going to say, government, here's what we need from you. We know you need to put guardrails in place and they need to be different guardrails than the way before. Here are the guardrails, government, endorse those guardrails and entrust us to reframe the picture. But I don't know that we are all of one voice, particularly in Canada, to be ready to point the finger at ourselves collectively in the system to decide how we want the future picture to be painted versus turning back to our old ways, which says government now what? Right now, what are you going to do in terms of new new plans? So I think that we have to challenge ourselves, Dr. Lessie, because during the pandemic, the guardrails the government changed were quite draconian, right? You shall not do this, but good luck with the rest. And how we responded was up to us. Some good, some very bad in how we responded. Uh, and that's no surprise, I might add. That's happened globally. Uh, and it would be completely um, uh, crazy to think that in other countries, other jurisdictions, there's a united voice. There are enormous vested interests here to go back to what we had before. We all know that. But it's up to us to make sure we don't do that. And I'm very happy to help us all. This is our fight, wherever we are in the world. You know, this isn't your fight. This is, we, we all need to do this. It's our responsibility to our populations. It's why some of us have actually become physicians. You're, you're, you're right. And, and it's uh, when we say, you know, it's up to all of us. I hope us also includes patients uh, and individuals. I, I don't think we can simply turn this back to governments and say, OK, now you deal with it. I think governments will respond to um, the desire of the population and the actions that will come from uh, health professionals, as well as uh, non-for-profit and private sector that are involved in health. It's really all of us that have to make sure we don't fall back to where we were before. I want to make sure, and go ahead, Eric, and then I want to go turn yeah, to some so of the questions. Yeah, just one quick point to pick questions. up on what Lisa was saying. You know, we do need to look at ourselves. And I think when we go to our government clients, we need to increasingly go as partnerships and consortia. Um, we, you know, so often we've been siloed. Home care has got a solution. Uh, EMS has a solution. Virtual care has a third one. You know, if we go as a team and show we have an integrated approach and we're prepared to make some compromises, maybe in our little backyard in order to have a better patient experience, then I think we're going to move governments forward the right way. But it's really going to take a, a real, a true partnership perspective and a, and a group of partners to really make that happen. Sarah? Thanks. I promise not to take more than a few no, seconds. Okay. And it is simply to say, I think we also have to lift ourselves up from the problem solution conversation to actually creating a really compelling vision because people can align, leadership can align around a compelling vision. And I think then if we equip leadership at every level from sort of government level to practice-based leadership in the community, we can align and move towards something that draws us. Uh, and, and the solutions that we've come up with will be a big part of that. But right now, we don't have a compelling vision for what the future of healthcare can and should be for our populations. Very good point. And uh, we've heard some great components of that uh, compelling vision uh, for Canada today. I want to go to some of the questions that have come in. I want to re really give our, our audience a chance to ask their questions. So the, the first question came from Neil Stewart. At the outset of the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion of home care being a key to re relieving hospitals and long-term care. Somehow it didn't happen. Home care providers stay, uh, say they were not understood to be essential providers uh, the question is, do you have any thoughts whether we missed something? And I think, Chris, 
the question came when you were speaking, so I will turn it to you first. Sure. Uh, and, you know, across the provinces where we provide uh, home care services, it's, I think, six of the provinces in Canada, we saw um, stakeholders in the health system begin to do exactly the right thing, which was, you know, put in place measures to create capacity in home care. So care plans were reduced for lower needs patients. Um, some care plans were put on hold. Um, as activity in hospitals reduced because of the pandemic, you know, we saw less demand. So there was the opportunity to create capacity to begin to care for people in their homes to, you know, get them out of hospital, keep them out of long-term care. Only in one jurisdiction where, where um, we hold contracts did the funder make the decision to fund that held capacity. And um, it's, it's just the nature of um, how it works uh, in most parts of Canada. Uh, as the referrals did not come uh, to home care, you know, in some cases we saw, and, and listen, I don't mean to be critical, this is just what happened. Mm -hmm. um, as, as patients were moved from some acute care settings into other settings like hotels, um, alternate health facilities, um, they didn't come to home care. And so we began in home care to uh, lose um, our some of our staff. Uh, and at the same time, some of the incentives, you know, pay incentives for um, other parts of the health system across Canada, you know, disproportionately, uh, you know, disadvantaged home care. So I, I would say, yes, we, we did miss something. And let's all learn from that. And, and, uh, you know, to my earlier, earlier point, let's make sure we conduct, you know, tabletop exercises when we're making decisions like this, uh, to make sure we understand consequences. Thank you, Chris. Any other panelists who want to comment on that, Lisa? I would just add quickly, at Chris's point, I, I hear them all, and they're all absolutely the, the right direction to go, Chris. And if we add another layer to it, Bernard, I take it back to the economy and the economic drivers and the interdependencies. Mm -hmm. Chris, we also saw things where well-intentioned government policies, non-health policies, but government policies, counteracted with having an employable workforce given differences in pay, pay rates, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. And it's thinking about how do we, when we solve for things in health, solve for them as a society. We need sustainable workforce. Chris, you, you made a great case for it in terms of having this as an appealing profession, having this as a way in which we can support it. Well, we can't do that alone in health. Like looking down and in into healthcare can't solve some of the macro workforce, sustainability, livability of our country from an economics perspective. And we got to reconcile those if we're actually going to make some sustainable change versus just what we do in healthcare is squeeze a different end of the balloon, right? And in COVID, we squeezed the end of the balloon that was around hospitals and institutional care. And we didn't look to the end of the balloon effectively enough about home and other settings. Well, if we revert post-pandemic and say, right, let's turn our back on hospitals and institutional care and focus only out here, we're just squeezing another end. So it is about the combined efforts. Thank you, Lisa. Um, we have another question from anonymous attendee. Um, and Eric, I think this one's probably for you. How is paramedicine not considered adding another silo to the healthcare system? And uh, we seem to look for new models and initiatives rather than work to improve existing systems. Are you finding that community paramedicine is expensive? Um, given the cost of vehicle maintenance equipment, uh, that is how now covered by health funding envelope. 
Uh, home nursing in the contracted model in Ontario does not cover vehicle and equipment. We talk about using the right profession. Do you see paramedicine as replacing home nursing visits? So I'll, I'll, I'll ask you to comment first, Eric. Um, thanks, Bernard, and thanks uh, to, the, to the questioner. So, uh, no, I, I, first off, we look at this from a clinician agnostic perspective. If we start with the patient and their problem, we can then ask ourselves, you know, who, who practices at the right level of scope to solve that particular problem and how can we, and given that a variety of problems may exist, you might need a variety of providers to assist with that. So with paramedicine specifically, it actually is very cost effective because quite often there's capacity in the system. So the actual cost of deploying a paramedicine crew is uh, the gas, uh, you know, into the truck to, to get them there because, you know, they're, they're waiting between emergency calls. But that being said, if you look at a more optimal model, what we're doing in New Brunswick, when a 911 call comes in, we are now able to triage that call and not necessarily send out an emergency crew. What we might find out is someone, in fact, you know, they do have a problem, but it's not an emergency. Say it's COPD. We'll send a paramedicine crew to make sure that they are comfortable and stable and assess the problem. They'll then be able to get on their tablet and say, you know what, we're going to have a, a nurse come by the next day. I'm going to book that appointment right now. Um, they can't come for uh, about 36 hours, but we'll have 811 call you uh, to make sure that everything's fine. And if it isn't, you know, we can intervene yet again. That nurse may then set up a, a, an episode or a, a visit with a respiratory therapist. And all of that will be uh, done again collaboratively and uh, linked into the physician's care plan for that particular uh, patient. So I think that there, the, the right question is, you know, what, who is the right clinician uh, clinical provider for that particular problem. And in many cases, it could be a paramedic, but in lots of cases, it won't be. And, and you know, we see many models where we have paramedics working with nurses in a uh, rural response unit where they've been able to augment uh, emergency departments to go out and work together. Uh, in northern communities, they work as teams. So we, we very much see this as a collaborative perspective. Thank you, Eric. I see Sarah and Chris uh, raised their hands. So Sarah, please. Yeah, thanks so much. I think this is a really terrific question. And I think there are lots of different ways of utilizing paramedicine. And to Eric's point, it's going to look a little bit different in different settings. I'll share with you here in Marathon, where, as I mentioned, we're working hard to embrace that patient medical home model. We actually have a data sharing agreement with our local paramedics so they can access the patient EMR that we use in our clinic. We see ourselves on the same team. Um, and so they can actually chart in our patient EMR. They can message us within the EMR. So our our paramedicine program is uh, very tightly woven into the patient medical home. It's a conversation and a true team-based approach, which is possible in, in this environment and I think possible in other environments as well. But I think your question about how do we ensure that we're moving towards a well-integrated system uh, is a really important one and one that I think we have to keep our eyes on, all of us as healthcare partners across the system. Solid point. Thank you, Sarah. Chris? I, I think I would just say, you know, maybe it's more of the same, but I just want to hasten as, as a home care provider, I just want to hasten to say that I, I would rather ask a more exciting question, which is how can we create a system that's better than it is today by you know, examining what are the right interfaces? How do we create a continuous system between what are currently maybe silos in the healthcare system? And, you know, what models are need to be scaled? Um, and therefore, who do we need to look to to deliver the care? You know, I, I think 
I'm personally very excited about um, the emergence of community paramedicine in Ontario. We're having some excellent discussions and, and I know community paramedicine is supporting some of the integrated models that we're delivering. So, you know, I feel there's, there's room for all of us and we, we will not serve our vulnerable well if we don't do everything we can to reduce the friction uh, between those of us delivering care. Yeah. Well said. Um, next question is for uh, Dr. Alessi. Um, culture trumps, exclamation point. What have you seen to be the most effective to overcome the pull of long established cultures of healthcare professionals, individual disciplines and, and acute focused systems? Oh, easy, wow. Easy question. <laughs> culture trumps and doesn't it just, and doesn't it always, absolutely. Um, what I have seen is dedicated groups of people who get together, who think imaginatively around how they're going to change the system. And they use um, uh, an element of, um, what's the word that I'll use? It's not disruption. It's um, um, uh, something which, which, which goes a little bit further than disruption. It really looks to capture the imagination of the public, of people, to assist us. Uh, in actually delivering what is something we all require. We're all getting older. Multimorbidity is going to kill our system, if not, even without COVID, uh, because of the number of conditions we all, we all uh, live with. Um, uh, so th there's a real vested interest in all of us to actually get a health and, and care system we require. And I think we can do this if we, if, if we literally work together and think in terms of engaging people, uh, uh, all people, in a way to actually overcome the problems we have. And I've seen this, I've seen this work in the center of Europe. I've seen this work in Asia really very well. Uh, I've seen this work in parts of the United States. I've seen this work in most countries. All you need are the people to do this. Very good insight. And any, um, any other panelists wanna chime in on this one? No, I will I, I go. Well, go I ahead, just Lisa. say, Bernard, I think what we've seen during this last year is that if we just pose a different question to people and we give them the forum to answer it in their own way, to Dr. Alessi's point, like they want to come together to answer these questions, but we've continually set them up in a different mindset. And so orthodoxy's got broken. So people had to solve things differently. Well, how do we keep that momentum alive? the breaking of our legacy orthodoxies, we've layered them on top of each other in the health system, working around its ineffective things and the like. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think Dr. Alessi is, is right on, which is keep bringing people together and ask them to solve different problems. And they've shown they will. And, and we don't need unanimity for change. Uh, we can't wait for everyone to agree to implement the change that is required to provide better care. There's about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to read the questions. We're going to go to almost a rapid fire type of answers. Um, question here, how does diversity, equity, and inclusion play into addressing the changing healthcare needs in and as we shift to some normalcy post-pandemic? Who would like to address that question first? Uh I'm going to get a couple comments. So, so equity is really important in terms of access. You know, we're, we're, of course, we're all talking about virtual care, but we have to think about access to the internet, for example, and, you know, rural remote communities, you know, it can be difficult to have that kind of access. 
And we also have to understand it's not always going to be a panacea for, for cost or for, uh, for delivery. There are going to be situations where it just makes much more sense for there to be face-to-face visits, maybe uh, supplemented or augmented with, you know, medical triage centers or, or advice, uh, you know, on a smartphone. But we really have to think about, you know, how we're going to uh, provide that access to everyone. I mean, there are policy questions at a provincial federal level about providing uh, internet access, you know, equitably across the country. And and once again, even if people have that, that may not be the mode of care that is uh, the most effective for that particular individual. So, you know, that's certainly a a topic that requires a lot of deep thinking. Sarah? So just to add to that, I think I think um, that Eric's point about equity is just really profoundly important. I think one of the things that we've learned through COVID is that it's actually often the most vulnerable populations, racialized populations, Indigenous populations, who struggle with inequity in the healthcare system. And to the point that was made earlier, I think one of the most profound ways of being more inclusive and, and seeking more diverse representation in the solutions that we need to seek is really to include that patient voice and to to go to the communities of people where they live and say, what do you need for vaccination to work well in your community? What information, what, what leadership, whatever the issue has to be, I think we need to embrace and include the voices of diverse patient populations to inform the solutions that we create as healthcare providers. I agree, Sarah, and I also, diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is, can no longer be just an afterthought, that we do something and then what does it mean for all the populations? It has to be central to, to our actions and how we do it. And there's one thing that's clear, the, the younger generation certainly feel that way. They, they, they feel it has to be central, not only to our health system, but to our economy and, and everything else. And I think we, we can all learn uh, from that. I'm gonna go quickly to three questions. Uh, There are great opportunities to leverage community paramedicine to bring virtual primary care services to unattached patients. Actually, that was a comment, so thank you. I won't even, any quick comment you want to add, Eric, to that? I agree. We agree. Good. All right. How do you propose to change some key policy issues, such as public funding is required only for medical necessary care given in hospitals or by physicians, which means that much of home care does not need to be publicly funded? And professionals uh, licensing does not allow providers to give remote care to patients in jurisdictions other than where they are licensed. Do you think these are likely to change? Chris, do you wanna address that one? Sure, if I, if I understand the, the first question, um, I, I think maybe it has to do with the fact that home care is not an insured yeah. service in Correct. Canada. And, uh, you know, certainly we hear at the federal level more, more discussion, you know, we've seen dedicated funding for home care uh, sent to the provinces or commitment for funding to the provinces for home care. So I think, you know, like Australia, where the Royal Commission is doing great work, I think it is going to change in Canada and it has to change in Canada. I mean, listen, listen to what we're talking about today. Um, I really think, um, I really do think that the conditions are right to change. Any other quick thought, Eric? Uh, Bernard, I just think, you know, we really have to get much better about having this value-based healthcare conversation and having the, the data behind it to make really compelling arguments that, you know, various investments are going to be much smarter for the healthcare system. We have to determine, you know, what are those patient desired outcomes and simply divide them by the cost of delivery. And I think, you know, it, it sounds simple, at a hypothetical level, but 
we really need to invest in the data and invest in the, the, uh, the individuals that can bring that analysis forward to make those compelling arguments. And, and if I just pick up, Eric, on your previous comments around the importance of collaboration consortiums coming together, because no matter what we look at in funding, if we continue to slice it, no one will ever be happy with their slice. If we look at what the patient needs and say to a set of providers, serve this differently, um, you know, it, it changes the conversation and it changes the innovation in the how. And what we'll see is it isn't only the setting that changes, it's who does the work from a a clinical professional perspective, how they deliver the work, and what is the nature of the work we now say needs to be delivered. All of those things will get changed if we change the lens. The lens. If I can just add to, to that as well, is if we are uh, truly interested in patient care and putting this, the patient at the center of care, then we will be willing to adjust the funding models and we will not be uh, handcuffed by the ideas of the last 50 years. And this is, a, this is an excellent question. It's an important policy uh, discussion that we won't resolve in the next three minutes, but I'm glad the question was raised and thank you for in, initial insight. Um, I'll take one last question that has been posted here. And it says, uh, Dr. Alyssa, brilliantly reframed what we have called person-centered care to precision care. Love it. Many patients have noted that previous tractions of person-centeredness has been lost in the shift to virtual digital care, i.e. family caregivers are locked out and further barriers are placed in front of people without access to devices, stable internet, etc. How can we get the precision, the precision care and make sure we are acknowledging the barriers that still exist? Um, um, I think that's an excellent question because there is a blended approach and I think we need to be thinking in terms of a blended approach with a little bit of digital interaction, as well as uh, that personal, personal care we're all talking about. Uh, this is possible. There's also this, this myth about a digital divide uh, when it comes to age, which is actually completely inaccurate. We've done a lot of work um, in, in different countries to really show that if you have an approach which is aimed towards older people, you get the results you expect traction amongst older people. But we insist on having a, an approach based on millennials and really deploying that to eight-year-olds and then wonder why it doesn't work. What a surprise. Um, uh, so really there are solutions if we're smart enough to, to, to deploy them. You're absolutely on the button. We can manage both. So I'm, I'm gonna, any, any other thoughts from anybody else? I think if I could just go quickly ahead. say, yeah, we, we, haven't, we haven't talked a lot today about support to, give, to caregivers, but just to pick up on that point, the, you know, one of the keys to keeping people at home is that they have someone there or near them who can help support them. And any model we're developing has to include the caregiver um, in, in terms of uh, getting access to resources and support. Well, on that note, I will close the questions. There's some great comments um, that are uh, in the chat box. I invite you to, to read them. And there's some, there was some uh, uh, great reference as well to uh, documents and, and, and uh, websites with information and data. So it could be very helpful. I really enjoyed today's uh, conversation and panel. I, I wanna thank, of course, our keynote speaker. I wanna thank our panelists. I wanna thank all the attendees in Longwood for making this happen. It was great to sense the energy, the enthusiasm, the hope uh, 
that we can make things better for patients. Um, if there's one wish I have, there's, there's a lot of information and next steps that have been identified today. It's really, and the key message I heard from the panelists today is it's up to us and us as all of us on this call and all of us in the audience to make this change uh, happen. And there's really nothing preventing us from doing it. So if we are determined to make things better for patients, we can. And not only we can and we should, I think we must. And so I'm, I'm inspired by what I heard today. I'm motivated by what I heard today. And I hope we uh, collectively, the panelists and certainly the keynote, I'm sure you have the same impact on the audience today. So on that note, thank you very much, everyone. I will turn it over to Matt for uh, final words. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Bernard, and thank you, everybody. Uh, there were a number of questions and comments that we may not have had the opportunity to uh, address this morning. I will continue to work with the uh, with this group and see whether or not there are some opportunities for us to address the additional questions, whether or not that be through social media, through a small paper or something. Um, so there will be some additional communication, hopefully, uh, over the next few weeks. Other than that, I want to just, again, um, Thank Medivy and thank Bernard and uh, all the panelists. Wonderful day and uh, I wish you a great day. And that is it. We are done. Enjoy your lunch. Great. Bye -bye. Thanks, thank Matt. You, Thanks, team. Take care. Real pleasure. Bye now. Thanks, everyone.